and the show goes on. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Sideline Exposure. I'm your host, Mitchell Crossan, and this is part two of The U. And so last week, we released part one, which just took a look at the University of Miami Hurricanes program success as a football program in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And now we're looking at the other end of the spectrum, which is the NCAA investigations, scandals, ramifications, etc. And this is the U. And a lot of people know that they've had much success back in the day and haven't been relevant now, but there's been so much to dig into these investigations that we went ahead and took the liberty upon ourselves to look back and bring you guys some information that you may or may not have known about what actually happened at the U. So let's go ahead and jump on in. So even during the time that the Hurricanes were not only competing for national championships, but winning national championships and bringing in Heisman Trophy winners and fantastic seasons, sitting atop of the college football world. They were involved in many scandals and had a bad image. And we touched upon this a little bit in last week's episode, but there was an involvement with guns, drugs, violent behaviors, and just rule-breaking with the NCAA. And so what we did... When we did our research and took a look back, we put together a timeline of some of the major events and major scandals that Miami was involved in. So we started off with some news that broke in 1994, and there are a couple things to unpack here. The first thing was a pay-for-play scheme, which occurred from 1986 to 1992, pretty much giving out cash to players for scoring, touchdowns, big hits, etc., this news broke later in 1994, and the head coach and the associate director of athletics were apparently aware of these payments, and this is definitely a major red flag for the program because this violates an athlete's amateurism status and makes them ineligible to play. There's also a second bit of big news that broke in 1994, and this said that there was a former, now former, and academic advisor at the University of Miami at the time, and that from 1989 to 1992, this academic advisor helped assist 57 football players and 23 other athletes in falsifying applications for Pell Grants. And this resulted in falsifying grants for more than $220,000, which is a pretty big deal. Because for those of you that don't know, this is fraud. And federal officials at the time called it one of the largest centralized fraud ever committed a Pence to Pell Grant fund, which is pretty big. And so you throw this on top of the pay-for-play scheme, which both broke in the same year, on top of the bad image that the Hurricanes football program already had. Some people actually thought that the program should receive the death penalty, which is the worst thing that can happen to you as a collegiate program. It just destroys everything and pretty much effective immediately pretty much makes the program non-existent. There's no recruiting, there's no practicing, there's no games, there's no nothing. So you want to avoid the death penalty at all costs. The third major thing of news that we found was that from 1990 to 1994, Miami had provided slash allowed $412,000 of excessive aid and or improper benefits to the football program specifically. They also failed to implement a drug testing system and lost institutional control of their football program. This news broke out in 1995, so only one year after the previous two schemes broke out. 
And it is said that the athletic director, Paul D., had allegedly hid drug testing results from the head coach, Dennis Erickson, to avoid suspension of some of the players. So check, check, check off the bat. I mean, three strikes and you're out. And not that I think that Miami deserved the death penalty because I don't think so. But this is bad, and we'll get into this a little bit more later. But we also had another big thing that came out, and this is more recent. And so this brings us back to 2011, and this involved a big-time booster of the program, Nevin Shapiro, who committed many NCAA violations and provided the football program with improper benefits, to be quite frank. This included cash and gifts, which exchanged hands, and there's also some discounts given out in restaurants and clubs. Now, it was said that these players would head to Shapiro's mansion or his private rev- residence or his yacht. And that's where these gifts and cash would be exchanged. And not that that's a violation going on a rich person's boat. But the point is that it just destroys your amateurism status. And that is the whole problem behind a lot of these schemes. And this is definitely a more recent news that broke and around the same time is when we covered the Ohio State Tattoo Gate scandal we talked about that a couple weeks ago but at this point in college football it's really not a good look for the sport because you have multiple scandals breaking at the same time and it just makes the sport seem kind of sleazy and for those of you that don't really know what's happening or don't want to admit it I mean money is exchanging hands and at, a, at some point about a decade ago the sport did feel a little bit corrupt. But to head back to this Nevin Shapiro thing, this really all started in 2002, with Shapiro pretty much paying his way into a sports management company called Axis Sports. He owned 30% after paying his way in, and this agency went on to sign many Miami football players. And that's against NCAA rules. And at the time that the Miami football player or any college football player puts to pen the paper that effectively makes that player ineligible to be an NCAA athlete because it violates their amateurism status. So you can't sign with a sports agency, but that's what these players did. And I feel like that's what a lot of guys did, especially at that age. You're at a big-time program. You're doing very well. You're trying to go pro. And look, sure, is it a good business move on paper? Maybe. Maybe that's the case. But You just can't do this in college. And the NCAA doesn't screw around. Are they behind the times? Yes. Are things getting better now with NIL? Yes. But at that time, there was no room for error. But a lot of these guys didn't really seem to care or thought that they could get away with it. So the big thing that happened here is that allegedly Shapiro used investor funds to finance donations to Miami's athletic programs, claiming about $2 million dollars went to 72 football and basketball players from 2002 to 2010. So this went on for almost 10 years, which is a big deal. The big problem with this is not only what we've listed about and talked about with amateurism, but on paper and by the book, it violates the four following bylaws with the NCAA. It starts with bylaw 11, which is involving impermissible compensation to coaches Bylaw 12, involving amateurism of athletes. Bylaw 13, involving improper recruiting activity. And then bylaw 16, involving extra benefits to athletes. So with what we've talked about and what we've covered previously with amateurism, 
that is right in that same ballpark. And it's clear as day what Shapiro did was clearly against not only one rule, but many different bylaws. And so there's no room for error here at all. So this brings us to August 25th, 2011, with media reports starting to come out that, hey, there are 13 current football players on that roster which are now being deemed ineligible. This included the projected starting quarterback, Ja'Cory Harris, and that's a really big deal because he is you know, the pilot of your team, the captain on your team probably. And for a program like Miami that has been down since the early 2000s and has underperformed, especially historically being such a great program, they're trying to turn this thing around. And of course, that means you have to win on the football field. When your starting quarterback can't play, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Not a good look. So they had to deal with that in the summer of 2011, right before the season's about to start, because it's August 25th here. So there's kind of a panic if you're in the Miami Athletics Department at this point. But after a player is deemed ineligible, a university can petition the NCAA to reinstate players. And depending on the scale of each player's violations, players don't have to be required to miss any games or receive any sort of suspension or something that has to take on their permanent eligibility. But really, after the NCAA figures out what the hell is going on and they have their evidence of violations and deem players ineligible, they'll continue on with their investigation to help really see what the further ramifications are if need be. Once the NCAA has evidence that violations had broke, they immediately make those players or coaches or whoever it is ineligible then they continue on with their investigation but once they have their evidence in front of themselves they're like okay this guy's screwed and can kick him to the curb and they continue on so that's the problem is these guys think they can hide things or they just don't care i don't know what the case really is here but the ncaa doesn't screw around and they found that miami was in deep water so under these rules the players were still allowed to practice until the NCAA could confirm what the ramifications are. So in this case, the university did go on to file a petition to reinstate some of the players that were involved. And the NCAA did review this. And on August 30th, 2011, it actually cleared one player by the name of Marcus Robinson. But the other 12 players, it was confirmed that they had received impermissible benefits and could not be reinstated at that time. The biggest thing with those 12 players is that they had to make restitution before being reinstated into the program. So here's a little more detail about the players and, and what really happened here. Four players had received less than $100 in these impermissible benefits or in cash, and they didn't re receive a suspension. And the NCAA can be harsh, but less than $100 isn't much. It is against the rules but it's not bad enough to actually receive a game suspension. Once they, once these four players make restitution, they would be eligible to play. And we looked at the total restitution payments that came out of these 12 players, which came out to a total of about $4,000, which no player having to pay more than 1200 So it's not a lot of money, but it's still something that's been caught and is against the rules. There were five players including the projected starting quarterback, Ja'Cory Harris, that received a one-game suspension. And then there were two players 
who received four game suspensions and one player, Oliver Vernon, who was suspended for six games. And the reasoning behind some players receiving more suspensions and harsher punishments than the others is as simple as the greater the amount of improper benefits and violations broke, which is really the cash and the gifts exchanging hands like we talked about, then the greater the punishment. And so it's that easy. So at this point, I was thinking to myself, we have a little bit of a crossover between Miami's scandals and USC's big scandal that we also talked about previously in some other pods. But when you do your investigation into this, we found that Miami's athletic director, Paul D., he was actually on the chairman of the infractions committee for USC's huge scandal back in the day involving Reggie Bush and the improper benefits that him and his family had received. D was the one who had the final sign-off on bringing down the hammer on USC with some of the stiffest penalties the college football world had seen in really a couple years due to this scandal. And a lot of people actually thought that the hammer that was brought down on USC was a little too harsh. But the Miami's AD, Paul D here, was the main reason behind that. And what these ramifications for USC involved a two-year bull ban and a loss of 30 scholarships, which is a lot to lose. But D was the athletic director during the period of time at Miami that covered Shapiro providing improper benefits. And he seemed to encompass the current scandal with Shapiro as well as the 1995 scandal, as we noted with the drug testing or the lack of drug testing. So seemed like a hypocrite a little bit. You bring down the hammer on USC and talk about how they broke these huge NCAA rules and that it was so bad that we had to bring the hammer down. Yet, on your watch at Miami, it's just as bad, if not worse, and it seemed like you really knew about it. So that really didn't sit well with anybody. But when the NCAA first started their investigation into the Hurricane football program and Booster Shapiro, the death penalty really wasn't out of the question. And now remember, the death penalty kills the program for whatever that specific length of time is. And for whatever length of time that is, the program doesn't exist. And it's the harshest penalty you can receive. And one way that you can receive this penalty is become is becoming a repeat offender. And here is the NCAA's definition of that. Quote, a school is a repeat violator if a second major violation occurs within five years of the start date of the penalty from the first case. Now, the biggest thing about this is that these cases do not have to be in the same sport, end quote. So while the football program could have one major problem, if the basketball program had a major NCAA violation, that could be cause for the death penalty. And that's not to freak anybody out, but if we're going off of the book here for the NCAA, this is one thing that they look at. So just a little bit of info for you guys. But part of what the NCAA does when they stumble upon something like this is that they start to dig or they start to probe for any other violations that may have occurred earlier or what's really called as a pattern of willful violations. And they look at other sports, not just whatever program it committed the original violation. But this would allow the NCAA to investigate back to the time of the earliest violation that they could find. And then they would look at their definition of the death penalty and then determine whether or not that is needed here. When these violations and when this news broke about the Miami football program and the NCAA started to probe and dig around the other programs a little bit, 
They did find violations that occurred back a couple years prior with the baseball program's probationary period from 2003 to 2005. And now this would make the football program and the basketball program eligible for the death penalty, which is not a good look. Now, ultimately, the NCAA doesn't like to use a death penalty. It really, to me, feels like a nuclear bomb. It's really more of just a threat that they have at their disposal, and they will absolutely use it if they need to. But the last time the death penalty was given was in 1987 to the Southern Methodist University Mustangs. So it doesn't happen really all that often. But going back to our timeline here, on November 20th, 2011, Miami announced that they were withdrawing themselves from bowl consideration for the 2011 season as the NCAA continued to probe and continued on with their investigation. Miami did the same thing at the end of the 2012 season, including keeping themselves out of what would have been an appearance in the 2012 ACC Conference Championship game as the NCAA still looked into further violations at that point. So really, Miami's pretty much saying, hey, here's what I'm doing for you, the NCAA, to show that I'm taking this seriously. And it's almost like a show of good spirit that they're taking the steps to quote-unquote self-impose some sort of violations on themselves. And generally, self-imposing violations helps out a lot in situations like these. And it does go a long way with the NCAA. And then finally, in February 2013, the NCAA sent their notice of allegations to Miami, which was as follows. A lack of institutional control for not monitoring the conduct of a booster who provided thousands of dollars in cash and gifts to the football and men's basketball programs. Now, this is just a notice of allegations with sanctions still left to follow. So pretty much they're saying, look, we're done with our investigation this is what we found. This is the biggest problem. Now we're going to hit you hard with some sanctions. Later on in the year, in October of 2013, the NCAA officially announced the following sanctions. And there's quite a, li of a list here, so we'll go ahead and go through them a little bit. So under the entire athletic department program for Miami, they were on three years of probation. And under the football program, to be specific, it was as follows. There was no further postseason ban is the first thing. And this was this was part and thanks to the self-imposing ban that the Miami football program put on themselves, as we just noted, for the two years. And clearly, the NCAA deemed that this was enough of a punishment under that section. Now, if Miami hadn't done that themselves and didn't self-impose they may have received some sort of postseason ban here. So that's when we say self-imposing can help. Clearly, in this case, it did. The NCAA saw that, liked it, and respected it, and said, you know what, that's enough of a problem here. The football program does go on to lose a total of nine scholarships over the 2014, 2015, and 2016 seasons. And the football program may divide that up as it chooses. I don't know exactly how they divided it up, but to me, it'd be easy just to subtract three scholarships, one section for each year. And then the third thing with the football program is that players on unofficial visits may be provided only one complimentary ticket to a home game in both 2014 and 2015. So really, out of these three sanctions for the football program in particular, 
they really got off, I'm not going to say easy, but fairly well. The biggest thing here is the postseason ban. Self-imposing themselves and keeping them out of the postseason for two years was huge. And you see that reap benefits here. We'll, click, we'll quickly touch upon the men's basketball sanctions here. So their program lost one scholarship in each of the 2014, 2015, and 2016 seasons. And then we have some info on some of the coaches here involved in the athletic department. So a former Miami men's basketball coach, Frank Haith, who at that point was the head coach at Missouri by the time these sanctions came out, was suspended for the first five games of the 2013 season. And then three former Miami assistants, two for the football program, one for the basketball program, had each received a two-year show-cause penalty. And at the time of this announcement, one of the other head coaches, or excuse me, assistant coaches, was a defensive line coach at Louisville. And that school at that point had not yet commented on his future. But this part goes to show that even though you leave a program, the NCAA can still come back and bite in the butt a little bit, and it can hurt your current place of employment even if you left that program where sanctions were committed. And so that was something that coaches and players have to look out for as well. It doesn't impact players quite as much. Like if you go pro or something like that, then you're good. But for some of these coaches, especially in this case, two of these guys had left the program by the time that these sanctions came out, and they were still hit with some sort of punishment. So the last part of the research that we did, and you guys can find this, and we took a look at the NCAA's actual website where they pretty much archive all of these stories and sanctions, etc. And this was actually very knowledgeable. But when you pull up this archive here, the biggest thing, well, the first thing that they point out is that the University of Miami lacked institutional control when it did not monitor the activities of a major booster, the men's basketball and football coaching staffs, and then student athletes and prospects for a decade, according to what they found. The key here is the lack of institutional control. We saw that reflected strongly in, against USC and their sanctions. We also saw that a little bit. Some people had mentioned that with Ohio State. And so you see this at the big time programs where the big scandals hit. Now, this hits so close to home with USC because it feels like Miami is Hollywood in a way, right? It's a big-time city. There are big-time people there. Celebrities live there. And so when you're a big-time college athlete, even though you have these rules and restrictions as an amateur collegiate athlete, it's so easy to get caught up in the what it's like living in a big-time city like a, an L.A., Miami, or New York where sure there's maybe some good opportunities to make connections and further your growth especially if you're looking to go pro these are cities where you could possibly meet an agent and get in contact with somebody that can do that for you but you have to dance around that and be very careful as an amateur athlete and even in a city like new york as well there's a ton of opportunity but you can get bit in the butt and in this case if you're a starting quarterback like jacory harris and if you're suspended for a season when you're trying to make a name for yourself, if you can't play in games because of your suspension, you have to look at the bigger picture here. That's a big problem if you're trying to get drafted because now you have less games on film. And so when the draft time does come around, if somebody was interested in you, like if, let's just say an NFL team like the Cleveland Browns or whoever was interested in drafting you, 
you had a suspension. So not only are they going to wonder, mm, how's this guy's character? Can we trust him to do the right thing? If we're going to draft him early on, he's going to be, you know, the driver's seat for us. He's going to be our quarterback. We're going to give him the keys to the franchise. So not only are they going to have questionable thoughts and doubts possibly, but if you don't have games on film because you were suspended, then they can't always see what you can do. And so you have to look at the bigger picture here. And of course it sucks to not play for the school that you signed and committed to. But the bigger picture for these guys that are trying to go pro, I would argue hurts a lot more. Okay, so that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you to everyone who has listened. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated and we'll take one if you have one. Thank you to everyone who has left one already. That is greatly appreciated. And you can follow us on our social medias at Silent Exposure on everything other than Twitter, which is at Silent Exposed. Thank you to Twitter for limiting the character limit on the username or whatever it is. But you can follow us there to stay up to date on what we're doing here at SE. And we're excited to keep diving into these stories and these programs for you guys. And stay tuned because more content is coming out your way every Sunday through this offseason. Thanks for listening.